Okay. Took care of all the button pushing. So today we're discussing the builder's risk insurance policy. I feel like the builder's risk is uh, is the uh, stepchild. It always seems to be overlooked and doesn't get talked about very much. We always hear about the CGL coverage and all that, but uh, but uh, the builder's risk is is a very very common policy on construction projects, and having some familiarity with it can be useful in a variety of circumstances for the surety claims professional. It's a funny story how we got to this topic today, um, because I recently wrote a 22-page article with like 80 footnotes for an upcoming construction insurance monograph that will be provided in connection with the 2018 ABA Midwinter Program. And I submitted the draft to the editors right on the deadline, which, you know, is unusual for me, but I did. And uh, I got an email back a little later from the editors apologizing, saying that they were only looking for something that was basic and shorter. <laughs> so here I am with this, uh, you know, major article I've written. So, but you all are the beneficiaries of that because uh, after we're done today, when we send around our thank you for calling in, we will include a copy of the uh, full paper with all of its uh, footnotes and all of its glory for your edification and later reading. I recommend it for anybody with insomnia. Uh, it will certainly help with that. So, let's talk about builder's risk insurance um, generally. Builder's risk insurance covers a building during construction, before it becomes insurable as a completed structure, while the materials and the components are being moved on site, assembled, and put in place. Builder's risk insurance is a type of first-party property insurance that protects those with an insurable interest from accidental losses, damages, or destruction to buildings under construction, repair, or renovation, as well as materials, property, and equipment at the site. Addressing the nature and purpose of builder's risk insurance, the Florida Supreme Court observed that builder's risk insurance is a type of property insurance coverage, not insurance or warranty coverage. Those, the, the purpose of this type of insurance is to provide protection for fortuitous loss sustained during the construction of the building. As I mentioned, builder's risk insurance is a type of first-party property insurance. It does not indemnify third parties. The Maryland Court of Appeals noted, properly cast, the builder's risk policy coverage is for damage to the subject property directly caused by a covered loss, not to indemnify a third party for damage to the third party's property caused by an insured tortfeasor. The focus in this first party insurance is loss to the insured property, not whether someone else ought to be held liable for that loss. In essence, First-party coverage is a promise by the insurer to pay its own insured rather than a promise to the insured to pay some third party. Um, types of coverage forms. The policy forms for builder risk coverage have, have historically been divided into the all-risk variety and the named perils variety. The named perils policies provide coverage only for the specific risks enumerated in the policy and exclude all other risks. The all-risk policy, on the other hand, provides coverage for all risks unless the specific risk is excluded. Although characterized as an all-risk coverage, the policy does not actually cover all risk because of the exclusions that are in every policy. This has led some courts to observe that the name all-risk is a misnomer. Indeed, the name all-risk has been described as misleading and dangerous. Nevertheless, 
All-risk policies typically provide insureds with the broadest available coverage compared to the named perils policies because all-risk policies generally provide coverage for all causes of loss except those that are specifically excluded or limited by the policy terms. All-risk coverage is the most prevalent form of builder risk coverage found in the market. Insurance Services Office, the ISO, has drafted a number of standard form builder's risk policies. However, most insurance companies issue builder's risk insurance on their own manuscript forms. Accordingly, there can be significant variations from policy to policy in the coverages and exclusions. Because of these variations in policy forms, one must be careful to read the specific policy language and be aware that case law may not always have precedential value because of the variations in the policy language. So who is typically covered? The named insured under a builder's risk policy will typically be either the owner or the general contractor that is purchasing the policy. However, builder's risk policies usually include coverage for the owner, general contractor, subcontractors at any tier. Contracts such as the AIA A201 expressly require that the builder's risk policy ensure the interests of the owner, the contractor, subcontractors, and sub-subcontractors on the project. Claims will only be paid if the covered loss involves a party that has an insurable interest. So what is an insurable interest? Insurable interest has been defined as an actual, lawful, and substantial economic interest in the safety or preservation of the subject of the insurance against loss, destruction, or pecuniary damage or impairment of the property. Generally, an insurable interest exists where the person can suffer a loss if the property at issue is damaged. The party does not need to have an absolute right, title, or ownership in the property to have an insurable interest. The key is that the party must suffer some loss if the property is destroyed. Thus, contractors, subcontractors, material men all potentially have an insurable interest in a construction project. In a Florida appellate case, the Florida court held that an architectural firm had an insurable interest because they had a substantial interest in being held free from any liability arising out of their participation in the project. In contrast, in an Illinois appellate court held that a construction manager had no insurable interest under a builder's risk policy because it suffered no loss due to the damage and was not responsible for damage resulting from the actions of an independent subcontractor. So you can see the difference between a, a, an architect and a, and a construction manager. Construction managers are just there to get the work done and, and ensure that the plans and specs are being followed. They didn't design the building. They don't own the building. They don't have materials on site if they're a typical construction manager that's not at risk. And so therefore, they've been held not to have an insurable interest. So next we'll look at what risks are typically covered and how do you determine coverage um, in a builder's risk policy. The typical builder's risk policy covers the structure being constructed, building materials, supplies, equipment, and machinery intended to become a permanent part of the covered building or structure. Coverage generally is provided in some manner for temporary structures constructed and used on the job site, including construction forms, scaffolding, and false work. Coverage is also generally extended to materials in transit and in temporary storage, even away from the job site. In addition to insuring the structure itself, builder's risk policies also typically include coverage for building materials, machinery, and equipment on the premises that are awaiting installation. 
the covered machinery and equipment is different from the contractor's machinery and equipment that is used in the construction process, such as a backhoe or a crane. The type of machinery and equipment intended to fall under the definition of covered property in a builder's risk policy is that which will become a permanent part of the structure. This would include things like elevators, doors, windows, electrical equipment, HVAC units, water pumps, things like that. Now with builder's risk uh, policy, it's important to pay attention to the declarations page. Uh, and that should be your starting point when you're evaluating the extent of coverage under the policy. Of course, the declaration page, like with any insurance policy, is where the details of the policy coverage are summarized, such as identification of the named insureds, any additional insureds, property insured, coverage period, policy limits, that kind of thing, deductibles, endorsements. In contrast to liability coverage, like a CGL policy, a builder's risk policy will have limits of insurance with respect to the property covered. Thus, each individual covered property category may have specific limits and deductibles. For example, you might have a builder's risk policy with an overall coverage limit of a million dollars, but the limit of coverage for collapse might be limited to 100,000. The coverage for scaffolding and temporary structures might be limited to 50,000. Debris removal would have a different amount. Property in transit would have a different amount. So thus, in a particular, if a particular loss is covered, the amount of that coverage will be limited to the amount shown in the declarations page. So that's where you want to start to see what you've got in terms of coverage. The coverage grant of the typical builder's risk policy is limited to direct physical loss. The physical loss requirement is intended to eliminate coverage for economic losses or diminution in value. In Couch on Insurance, it is stated that the requirement that the loss be physical, given the ordinary definition of that term, is widely held to exclude alleged losses that are intangible or incorporeal, and thereby to preclude any claim against the property insurer when the insured merely suffers a detrimental economic impact unaccompanied by a distinct, demonstrable physical alteration of the property. Accordingly, it is generally held that physical loss requires some physical change in the condition of the covered property. In, uh, in a Georgia appellate court addressing this issue, the court noted that direct physical loss requirement of the policy contemplates an actual change in the insured property, which was originally in a satisfactory state, occasioned by an accident or other fortuitous event directly upon the property, causing it to become unsatisfactory for future use or requiring that repairs be made to make it so. Thus, physical loss or damage does not encompass faulty initial construction. The mere fact that defects exist in one's property is generally insufficient in and of itself to trigger coverage. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, as the court, a California appellate court noted, the defect that caused loss of value to the building was not covered as neither diminution in value nor the cost to repair or replacement are effective or active physical forces. They are not the cause of the damage to the structures. They are the measure of the loss or damage. Another requirement for coverage is fortuitous loss. In addition to the requirement of, requirement of a physical loss, in order to recover under a builder's risk policy, the loss must also be fortuitous. A fortuitous loss is a loss which, so far as the parties are aware, is dependent on chance. It may be beyond the power of any person to bring the event to pass. It may be within the control of third persons. It may even be a past event provided 
that the fact is unknown to the parties. Fortuitous can be thought of as a synonym for the word accident. To determine if a loss was fortuitous, courts will look to the time that the policy was issued to determine if, subjectively, the parties could reasonably have foreseen the loss. This subjective test standard will look to what the insured actually knew or believed as to the probability of loss at the time the policy was issued. The fortuity requirement exists as a matter of public policy because it would encourage fraud to permit recovery on an insurance loss which is certain to occur. So what risks are generally excluded? As we said, the builder's risk policy is based on the premise that all risks are included um, and then through exclusions, the risks are limited. So according, um, let's see, the typical exclusions found in a builder's risk policy include things such as delays caused by weather, liquidated damages, governmental actions, earth movement, water, corrosion, rust, dampness, mold, defective work and design, wear and tear, gradual deterioration, deterioration, settling, cracking, shrinking, expanding, collapse from defective materials. With any insurance policy, exclusions are generally be, to be construed narrowly and any exception to a policy exclusion is to be interpreted broadly. Ambiguity will typically be construed against the insurer who drafted the policy and in favor of coverage. Moreover, the burden is on the insurer to prove that an exclusion applies. So one of the common exclusions that uh, you would run into on a construction project is the defective work exclusion. One commentator observed that as a general rule, an all-risk policy will be interpreted to include faulty workmanship or negligent conduct as a covered peril or cause of loss subject to elimination or restriction by exclusion. This is because of the all-risk broad grant of coverage, as we discussed. However, while the initial grant of coverage may be broad enough to encompass defective work, most builders' risk policies contain a faulty or defective workmanship exclusion, which usually excludes losses arising from such faulty or inadequate work. A defective workmanship exclusion is applicable when the insured's loss is attributable to the quality of the constructed property, <coughs> excuse me, and arises from defects in the materials or process used by the insured or its agents to construct the property. Thus, in order for an insurer to deny coverage based on a defective workmanship exclusion, a court must be able to attribute the acts or omissions giving rise to the stated loss to the insured or its agents. <coughs> Now, it's typical with builder's risk policies, they will have what's known as an ensuing or resulting loss provision. Most builder's risk policies contain such provisions. A typical provision would read as follows. We will not pay for a loss caused by or resulting from any of the following, but if loss by a covered cause of loss results, we will pay for that resulting loss. Ensuing loss clauses act as exceptions to exclusions and operate to provide coverage when, as a result of an excluded peril, a covered peril arises and causes damage. <coughs> now, judicial interpretation of these ensuing loss provisions is not consistent and it's very highly fact-intensive 
And when you do the research and read through these cases, they are all over the map. You, you'll have similar facts, and, and you'll have one court going in one way and one court going a different way. And in, in some explanations uh, of the cases, they'll describe the analysis in a way that makes it seem that uh, ensuing loss provision could never be applicable. But uh, you know, you've got to you just got to work through it and see what your see what your terms and provisions are in your policy, and then look at your jurisdiction and see what the cases are holding. A basic example of of how an ensuing loss clause would apply might help to illustrate um, um, the issue. Suppose a contractor defectively installs a building's electrical system, and that results in a fire and significant damage to the building. Further, suppose that the builder's risk policy excludes losses caused by faulty workmanship, but the exclusion contains an ensuing loss clause. In this situation, the ensuing loss clause would preserve coverage for damages caused by the fire because loss due to fire is an otherwise covered loss, but it would not cover losses caused by the defective wiring that the policy otherwise excludes, nor would the ensuing loss clause provide coverage for the cost of correcting the faulty wiring. Generally speaking, an ensuing loss provision does not cover loss directly caused by the excluded peril, i.e., the repair of the faulty work itself. Rather, it operates to cover loss caused to other property wholly separate from the defective property itself. Once an insured triggers an exclusion, courts generally interpret the ensuing loss clause as restoring coverage to the insured only when an independent and covered loss occurs subsequent to the excluded acts or omissions giving rise to the loss. And it's important to recognize that that an exception to an exclusion does not create coverage where none otherwise exists. So in order for the ensuing loss provision to apply, there has to be uh, coverage for that damage otherwise in the policy. Under the majority view, to be an ensuing loss, the loss must occur subsequent in time to the initial excluded conduct, and that loss cannot be excluded by any other provision in the policy. Courts hold that and the ensuing loss exception is applicable when the loss is the result of an independent or superseding cause that is covered under the terms of the policy. Some examples might help with this. Um, so in, in a case in the District Court of Maryland, a plumber defectively installed a water line fitting. The fitting failed and water flooded the building. The court concluded that while the cost of replacing the faulty installation of the water line fitting was excluded under the workmanship exclusion, the ensuing damage clause to the building um, covered the water flowing and, uh, and the damage that was caused. The Ninth Circuit, uh, in a case involving the construction of a Costco warehouse, addressed the ensuing loss provision uh, where the warehouse was damaged when, um, or as a result of rather, of differential settlement in the building's foundation. Costco's insurance policy contained a faulty workmanship exclusion but movement of the earth was a risk the policy insured against. The Ninth Circuit concluded that coverage existed due to the ensuing loss exception. The court reasoned that movement of the earth was a risk insured against. Movement of the earth caused Costco's loss. Movement of the earth is distinct from the defective design, and the loss ensued from the defective design. Thus, the damage to the foundation from the movement of the earth was not an excluded peril. In another case, uh, Lakia Construction uh, out of the Southern District of New York, the insured 
contracted with a construction company to provide concrete for its construction of a new building. Contract required that the contract be a certain minimum strength. The strength of the concrete that was actually delivered to the site did not meet the specifications. The defective concrete had to be replaced using a process which required shoring up the building and all of the HVAC, ductwork, electrical fixtures, plumbing units, all that stuff had to be removed and reinstalled. The insured submitted the loss to its insurer requesting coverage for the defective concrete as well as costs for the shoring, the removing, and reinstalling. The insurer denied the claim on the basis that the plaintiff was seeking the cost of making good, faulty, or defective workmanship or material. The court found that the insured's claim fell squarely into the exclusion clause simply as a cost incurred to make good the defective concrete. In doing so, the court rejected the insured's argument that the mere incorporation of the defective work into the building caused the building as a whole to be damaged. The court noted that the defective concrete caused no damage to any other portion of the structure or property. The sole claim was for the cost of correcting the deficiencies in the concrete. Had a wall or floor collapsed as a result of the deficiencies, then that would have been a different case. The court added that the claim for coverage here is no more than an attempt to recover for the excluded cost of making good its faulty or defective work. Any other interpretation would result in coverage for nearly every instance of defective workmanship. Another example, the final example, is uh, InRay, the Chinese manufactured drywall products out of the Eastern District of Louisiana. The court found that because the insured's losses resulting from odors emitted, emitted by the defectively built Chinese drywall were a direct and continuous result of the dry, drywall's defect, the ensuing loss exception was not applicable to restore coverage. So as I said, the ensuing loss provision is a complicated area for the builder's risk policy, and it, it uh, is something that really has to be looked at carefully, but it's interesting that it can operate to, to restore coverage where an exclusion otherwise appears to exclude the coverage. So next, let's look at whether there's a duty to defend under the builder's risk policy. The standard ISO builder's risk form does not typically include an express duty to defend or reserve to the insurer the right to control litigation against the insured. While duty to defend exists in third-party liability insurance, such as CGL policies, as noted, above, as noted before, the builder's risk coverage is first-party insurance and insures the property, not third parties. This means that in contrast to liability policies, builder's risk coverage does not require that a claim or suit be brought against the insured in order to trigger coverage. Because builder's risk insurance's first-party coverage has been held that there is no duty to defend under such policies. However, given the, given the uh, varying terms among builder risk policies, it is possible that some of the manuscript policies may provide a duty to defend or an endorsement may introduce such a duty. In such circumstances, the standard obligations of the insurers in complying with such a duty would apply. In some cases, the builder's risk policy will, will reserve to the insurer an option to defend. When an option to defend has been present in a builder's risk policy, arguments have been made that the insurer now would have a duty to defend. However, the majority of the courts that have considered such provisions have held that a mere option to defend does not give rise to a duty to defend. <clears throat> Another clause that is typical in builder's risk policies is called the sue and labor clauses. As a general matter, parties to a contract have a duty to mitigate damages. In builder's risk policies, 
The Sue and Labor Clause seeks to define and limit the duty to mitigate. The Sue and Labor Clause has been described as an ancient clause that addresses the mutual duties owed by an insured and an insurer. It has been explained as follows. The insured has a duty of preventing a threatened insurable loss and mitigating such loss when it does occur. An insured who avoids or minimizes insurable loss acts for the benefit of the insurer. It is the benefit conferred which creates the duty on the part of the insurer to reimburse the insured for prevention and mitigation expenses. The purpose of the clause is to reimburse the insured for expenses incurred in satisfying the duty to the insurer, but there is no such duty where the policy does not afford coverage. The Sue and Labor Clause does not operate as an enlargement of the perils insured against. Rather, the clause is simply a condition of coverage, which must be read in conjunction with the insuring agreement and the applicable exclusions in the remaining terms of the policy. So when does coverage terminate under a builder's risk policy? Generally, uh, builder's risk insurance is considered a limited or temporary type of insurance. It is designed to cover the structures, materials, and equipment during the construction process. Some policies will specify a date certain for termination of the coverage. In the absence of a specified termination date or prior to the passage of that date, coverage under a builder's risk policy typically ceases when the project is considered to be completed. The date of completion will generally be defined in the policy as being when the owner accepts the structure as complete, when a certificate of occupancy is issued by the local building authority, or when the structure is put to its intended use. Okay, well, that's all I have on builder's risk. And as I said, I will send out the, um, the paper that I did on this topic, and you can uh, get a lot more information, obviously, there, a lot more case sites and so forth. So in closing, before we open up the line for any questions, I wanted to, as I always do, let everyone know um, that the next edition of the Surety Today will be on Monday, October 9th, 2017 at 1230 Eastern Time. Our topic will be the Surety and the False Claims Act. There's been some recent, uh, recent uh, events in this area that I think everyone will find interesting. And you're going to have to tune into this one because <clears throat> given the nature of the discussion, we will not, uh, we will not record that uh, Surety Today presentation, and we will not provide a written transcript of it uh, that's publicly accessible. Uh, events in the surety industry. The Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference will be held starting this Wednesday, September 13th through the 15th at Caesars in Atlantic City. <clears throat> if you're in Philadelphia, there'll be a Northeast Sponsors Dinner tomorrow on September 12th at Amada's in downtown Philadelphia. You can email me if you'd like to attend, and I will get you the details. The Atlanta Surety Claims Lunch will be on September 17th. Chicago Surety Claims Lunch will be September 21st. And the Philadelphia Surety Claims Lunch will be on September 27th. Okay, let me unmute the line here. And throw up in the line to any questions that anyone might have. You have a situation where uh, there's defective labor, which would be covered by a surety bond, but then there's an ensuing loss that would be covered by the uh, insurance policy. How do you apportion loss between a surety bond and an insurance policy? 
Yeah, I I don't know that uh, that I would look at it as a yeah. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how the I don't know how those would work themselves out. I would say that the that the surety would be looking to the insurance to be made whole, and the insurance would be left to subrogation rights if they're if they weren't waived in the policy. I think the I think the surety stands in the shoes of the insured and 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 can uh, make its claim on the policy just like the insured would. Okay. Anybody else got anything? Mike, one quick question. On policy limits on the builder's risk on a on a project, is it a flat rate throughout the whole project? Does it change during the project as the values of the property increase? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I, I can't say for, for certain. My belief is that that when you when you the way the policies work, you have to you have to notify the carrier what the project is and what the anticipated value is, and then you're supposed to be, you know, provide monthly updates. And I think uh, in some of those, you're you're providing the reporting that that indicates where the value is, and that might affect the the limits of the coverage as it goes forward. Uh, so I think that I think that's something that does happen. I don't know the extent to which that happens, and it might depend on, you know, the nature of the particular policy you've got and how the insurer is running it. Okay. Thanks. But I know the reporting, you know, the reporting requirements that, uh, can be very, uh, very important. If if the policies, if if the property is not reported properly, you you'll be ending up with no coverage. <laughs> okay. Anybody? Anything else? Well, appreciate everybody calling in, and uh, have a good week, everybody. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.